have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Paul presses ahead with the topic that he covered in all of chapter 14. So when you say, Robert, are you talking about it again? I say again, because he's still talking about it. Uh, so we'll talk about it a little bit more and, and press ahead. He, he touches new things and takes new angles on it, and I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful for us to camp for a little while on this whole topic of unity and harmony in the life of the church. The title this morning, as we look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, is Living to God's Glory. We see that in the, five, the four, four points as you run down, that we live to God's glory when we major on the majors and minor on the minors, when we please your neighbor and not just ourselves, when we follow Jesus and His Word, and when we're praying for power to do all those things. Here then, God's Word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in such Harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we welcome, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We come this morning as your people. We have gathered together and united together in prayer, in song, in voice, in worship. Because we long to know you and to love you and to please you. And so we ask that you would make your word live. That you would speak it to us afresh. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That our lives might be conformed to the image of Christ revealed in the Scripture, that we may be your people in truth. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sign out there at the street says, on one of the slides as it rotates through, it says uh, that we are biblical, Christ-centered, and reformed. And when we were thinking about the slides to put out there and the words to use to describe us, because there, there's more than one kind of Presbyterian out there, and there are a lot of people who don't know that, and so they hear Presbyterian, and they think you're liberal, or they think you're on this side of the thing, and we wanted to say we're not those Presbyterians, right? So we want the sign, you know, to some way reflect who we are, that we are biblical, <laughs> Christ-centered and Reformed. And when we were thinking about that, we thought about using the word evangelical at one time. Um, but we decided against it because the word evangelical has become co-opted and it's, it's used quite a lot now out there these days. And in many ways, it's been overly politicized. It's almost like a political block kind of a thing. And so when some people hear it, 
you know, we on the inside still mean what we mean, but a lot of times when other people hear it, it doesn't mean what we think it means to them. But evangelical churches historically, and this is who we want to be, which is why we chose the words, by, by the way, biblical and Christ-centered, which are just ways of saying that's what evangelical is. They believe really that the Bible, and this is evangelical churches historically, they were those that preached the gospel, actually the word evangel in evangelical, evangel is the word that's translated gospel in, in the New Testament. So it, it are the, it's, it's churches that believe and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, from a word that we believe, a Bible, that is the word of God, is the only rule, we just heard these, these men take vows, that do you believe that it is the word of God, the inspired word of God, and it is the only rule for faith and life, for what we believe and how we live, for our theology and our morality, that it is the, the, the rock on which our entire Christian life and theology, thinking, and living is built. So evangelical churches were those that agreed on this core then of biblical doctrine and morality as it's the clear teaching of Scripture. We share the great confessions, Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the believe in the deity of Christ and the biblical morality as it's given to us here. And the Bible is God's Word. And so the clear teaching of it then is non-negotiable. Part of what it means to be evangelical in the historical sense or to be biblical in Christ-centered. Those things clearly given to us here are non-negotiable. But we've been saying over the last few weeks that not everything is equally clear. There are many things that are not entirely clear. And there are a lot of human traditions and teachings and things that are not necessarily even biblical. And we see that this is okay, that we, when we think of evangelical denominations that are biblical and Christ-centered and gospel-centered and Christ-preaching, um, that, that they come in different shapes and sizes. There are Baptist and Pentecostal, and uh, there are portions of other denominations that are evangelical in their beliefs. And so it shows us there can be unity on, on essentials, that we are brothers and sisters with our Baptist and Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Why? Because we agree on, the non, on all the non-negotiables, the essentials of biblical truth, the Bible as the Word of God. But there's also diversity in non-essentials, and we see that in the way each of those denominations look and practice, whether it's how they do baptism or how they do church government, and those kinds of things. There's diversity in none. There's diversity within the PCA, in our denomination. If you go to different churches across Chattanooga, you'll see different expressions in the way churches worship, whether it's a new city, if you know some of these churches, but a new city is a very different worship style than we do, which is very different than some of a covenant prayers and some of the others. And it's just to say there's a beauty in the diversity in the way that we all believe the same confessions and the same things, and yet there's a diversity in the way we express that in a lot of the non-essentials. We express our personalities. So Paul is addressing, that's what he's addressing, these non-essentials in this text and that we've been looking at. Some of it has been between Jewish and Gentile Christians, and some of it, you know, there's meat sacrifice to idols, and so the pagans have some qualms about that, or there are festival days and that kind of thing for Jewish Christians who are steeped in the Old Testament, and they think they should be part of it. And so there is some of this dynamic in the church where you've put Jews and Gentiles together, and now you and I come from all kinds of 
various places, and God puts us together into one church. And Paul has been laying out a pattern then for handling the differences. Basically, the sum it up is in the major on the majors and minor on the minors. Right? That's where Paul has been arguing along uh, throughout chapter 14 and now into chapter 15. A pattern for handling differences on minor matters in the life of the church. And he says the essential value that we're after when we think about those things is preserving the king's peace in the life of the church. And that's what he's doing. He's given us the, the pattern to handle those things and preserve the king's peace and harmony in the life of the church. He said, everyone should be convinced in his own mind by the Scriptures. Whatever you think about these things, you should be convinced in your own mind by the Scriptures. In other words, there's a right of private interpretation. It's a, it's a reformation value that we value your right to study the Scriptures and let God bring conviction on some of these things to your own heart. And that means that we're not blindly swayed by the opinions of others. The Berean Christians were better because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. They searched them for themselves. They tried to land on what does the Scripture say? What is God saying? How do I hear it? So we should be convinced in our own minds. But even though we're convinced in our own minds, and I am convinced in my own mind, he says, though we arrive at that place, he says, don't judge those who disagree with you and don't look down on them and treat them poorly. Don't treat people who disagree with you on these minor things poorly. Focus on the majors, not on the minors. And so God's people are not to quarrel about opinions in these things. We should pursue humility and respect and peace. And this means not flaunting our freedom. It means being careful not to injure and tear down our brothers and sisters with whom we have minor disagreements. And now in this text, he goes on to say that in regard to minor matters that are not clearly laid out in the Scripture or are part of our church tradition and, and preferences. He said in regards to those things, he says, don't be selfish. <laughs> right? We see the progression in these seven verses here. If you watch the way that it unfolds, in verse 1 he says, please not yourself. In verse 2 he says, rather please your neighbor, please your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in verse 3 he says, and Jesus is our example of this. Right? And then in the same verse, he, he quotes the Scriptures to say, and the Scripture testifies that this is the way Jesus was. Right? And then he says, and this is, this is the whole point of Scripture. Uh, it's given to us. The Old Testament in this case that Paul's going on, it's given for our instruction to show us what Jesus is like so we can pattern our behavior and our lives on Jesus. We can follow him. We can imitate him. We can be more and more like Jesus. That's what the Scripture is for. That's why it is given to us. And then in verses 5 and 6, he simply now breaks into prayer, or doxology as we call it. He's now asking God all the things he's been telling them. In verse 5 and 6, he seamlessly flows into prayer and he begins asking God to give us the things he's been teaching us. The grace and the power that we need to be the kind of people he's describing and even in the middle of telling us, teaching us what that is, he immediately prays that God would do it. And when he does it, what does it look like? It looks like verse 7. A welcoming people with the same welcome of Jesus to the glory of God. Right? That's where he's going. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, to please your neighbor, not yourself. Don't be selfish. 
but love your neighbor, right? That's verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us rather please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Right? Don't be self-centered. Don't be selfish. Don't let it be all about you, but rather you should want to do good to your neighbor and to build them up, to edify them. And he says it, it is the strong who need to bear with the failings of the weak because the strong have a better grasp of their freedom that is in Christ, the, the, the freedom from the restrictions of, of law and tradition. Jesus worked hard in his disciples to help them see their freedom from law and tradition as Paul does as well throughout his teaching. And so when he says that we're to bear with, that bear here means to, to take up. We, and just like in English, we can say to bear. We can say is to bear with somebody, or it can mean to bear something is to actually carry it. And the idea here is that second one is Paul uses it elsewhere. It means to take up and to carry it. He uses the same word in Galatians 6, verse 2, where he says, bear one another's burdens. That's usually a verse that we're fairly familiar with. Bear each other's burdens. Carry your brother's burdens. Take a share of the load for him. Walk with him so that it's not so burdensome to him. A.W. Pink says that we are not here enjoined to bear with the petty whims and scruples of someone else, of another, but rather to render practical aid to those who lag behind the rest. To be respectful, to be gracious, but also to build up, right? In verse 1, he says, don't please yourselves, don't be selfish, but rather, verse 2, please your neighbor. What does that mean, please your neighbor, right? But he, but he says, he says, for their good, to build them up, right? That's what it means to, in other words, don't just do the things that are beneficial to you, but what's beneficial to him is to do things that are for his good and build him up. So what does it mean? How do we build him up? I think it means at least a couple of things. It means respecting and welcoming them. But it also means instructing and teaching them. Right? Respecting and welcoming those you disagree with, but also along the way, as we're convinced in our own mind, in good, healthy debate or in good, healthy teaching in different formats and in our lives, we are also to instruct and to teach. So we, we do it, first of all, to please our neighbor by respecting and welcoming them just as they are, as the hymn goes. Right? Just as they are, you're welcome here. You don't have to change your opinion to be welcome here. You know, however much we may disagree or, you know, have friendly conversation about it. And there are those who join our church. I go through the HBC 1 a week, weekend. I spend three hours teaching doctrine. But I always tell them right up front that there are only some of it you have to agree with to join. You need a credible profession of faith, but a lot of things I'm going to teach you, you don't have to agree with. And at the end of it, I have people who tell me, I, I don't agree with this and this. Right? I'm still, I don't, you know, I'm not there. And I, I, that's okay. You're still welcome here. You're not second-class citizens. Right? And that's, I think, where he partly goes at to please our neighbor is, it, is to welcome and respect them in a way that they're not second-class citizens just because they disagree with you on certain things. We're not judging. We're not despising. Right? And so Romans chapter 12, a few chapters ago, in verse 10, he said this, Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. 
And I think in this context, he's saying an honor to all, and that's with the weak and the strong and all those people are in the church, and this is the general rule. We outdo each other in loving our brothers and sisters and showing them respect and honoring them even in their disagreement. It's the same thing that Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's verses 1 and 2 here. Don't be selfish. Don't let it be about you only in the life you live in a community. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, which undergirds all of this, count others as more significant than yourselves. Think of them, in some ways he's just saying, think about them before you think about you. Love them and respect them. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, those people who agree with you, but also to the interests of others. Care about them and be considerate. Care about their interests. It doesn't mean to blindly submit to their scruples, but it means to look out for them and to be considerate of them. And why? Because Philippians gives the same rationale, doesn't it? If you know that passage, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then in verse 5 he says, you know, then have this same mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, and he went to the cross. And so he points to Jesus. Here is this, don't do anything, don't be selfish in your, in your community life at the church on these issues. Don't be selfish because Jesus, and he points to the life of Christ who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Right? He points to Jesus. Paul does the same thing here, doesn't he, in verse 3. That's what he, he points to. So we respect and welcome each other, but the second way that we, we work for the good and the building up of our neighbor is that we also, in the proper context, gently and in the right places, when a word in season, we teach and we instruct and we point toward the truth as it is in Christ and in the scriptures about our freedom and our privileges. So we know, I said last time, I think it was last time, in chapter 14, verse 22, where he says, whatever you think about these things, you know, keep them between yourself and the Lord. And we know that that doesn't mean we're not allowed to talk about it. Right? It just means don't argue about it in some ways. You can, you, you, you live to your Lord, he lives to his. But it doesn't mean that we have to pretend the issue doesn't exist and we're not allowed to talk about it. One way I know that is that Paul says this while he's talking about it. To the whole church, right? He says it while he's talking to everybody about how to handle the differences. He is at the same time teaching about those differences, right? He's instructing us on the freedom and privileges that we have in Christ. And he makes his own opinion very clear multiple times. And when he does it in 14.14, he does it in the most uh, strong terms I know possible. He says, I know, right, Paul the Apostle I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in himself. So he, he stands as an apostle with apostolic authority, knowing in the Lord what the truth is, and he tells it to the church quite plainly, to the whole church. He writes it to them, and he wants them to understand it. So pleasing not ourselves not only means not trampling on the conscience of the weak, it's doing what Paul's doing in this passage, which is both. Not trampling on the conscience of the weak but at the same time lovingly instructing them and pointing them in the direction of freedom. It means not to ignore their need. John Stott, several of the authors that I read, but Stott says to please your neighbor and to build up includes to educate and so to strengthen their conscience. 
as part of what it means to love them and to build them up. And so he says we do this because this is how Jesus did it, right? In verses 3 and 4, for Christ did not please himself. That's the kind of person Christ was, and he was the perfect person. So it's the right kind of person. This is the way that Jesus was. He points us to Jesus and the word, to his word. Right? And so in verse 3, he turns from, from strictly theological argument. Right, He's been telling us, as it is in the Lord, I know these things. And, and he's teaching us and giving us you know, this, this uh, systematic, so to speak, uh, theological argument. But in verse 3, he takes that theological argument and he embodies it right, by, by turning us to Jesus. And he says, the, sa- the theology I'm teaching you was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. It is who he was. What I'm telling you is about Jesus and about who God is and what God is like. Jesus is the living and embodied word of God. Jesus is everything that all of the scriptures says is right, just, righteous, beautiful, God-like. Jesus is. He embodies. Jesus is the invisible God, Colossians tells us, made visible. He's the embodied word, and so he takes his theological argument that he's been teaching for over a chapter now, and he embodies it. Jesus did not please himself. Is that an understatement? I mean, I I feel like he should have spent a little bit more there just (laughs) unpacking, like, Jesus did not please himself. Like, that is the, the understatement of the century, of the millennia, that he, was, that he did not please himself. Jesus in his selflessness, his self-denial, his sacrifice, what Jesus gave and did for us and for our salvation, to simply say he didn't please himself doesn't cut it. Right? There's so much more to be said. We try to, we sing it in different ways. And can it be, wondering, that he left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite, his grace, that he emptied himself of all but love. And he bled for Adam's helpless rage that the reproaches of those who reproach me fell on him. It's a very simple way and a simple statement of saying he pleased not himself. And so Paul is applying, this is Psalm 69.9, the reproaches of, uh, in verse, end of verse 3 there, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, is Psalm 69.9. It's the word of God. Paul says, here's the theology, here it is embodied in the life and the character of our Savior And here is the scripture testifying to our Savior and his nature and his character. The word of God agrees both with with the theology I'm teaching, but also with the life and theology and morality as as it's embodied in Christ, who fulfilled all of scripture. And he says that the scriptures then have this power to reveal Jesus to us. And because it reveals Christ to us and it tells us God's perspective, it has power to produce 
endurance and encouragement in God's people, right? That's verse 4. He goes from just quoting the scriptures, backing up what he's saying about Jesus, which is illustrating what he is teaching us. He goes on to give us a doctrine of the scripture in verse 4 to say, and it's perfectly appropriate to point to the scripture this way because whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And that's how I'm using it to show you that it reveals the character of Christ that through this instruction, seeing, hearing, reading the word of God this way, he says, through it, we receive endurance and encouragement and hope. It's the purpose of the scriptures. It's not just to instruct our minds. It's not just to give us information. right? But he says as we encounter the revelation of Christ there, as we encounter Christ there, as we encounter God there, as we read the scripture to know him and to love him, we are strengthened and given endurance and encouragement and patience and hope. It's the purpose of the Bible. It was written for these things, not just to instruct us, but to change us and to strengthen us and to mold us and to conform us to the image of Christ that's revealed there. It was written thousands of years ago, and he's, Paul, when he's talking now, he's writing the New Testament, so he doesn't have a New Testament. He's writing it, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says everything that was written there was written for us. And when he's talking to the contemporary church at that time, it is as true for you and I today. It was written for the church, for our instruction, for our patience and encouragement, for our hope. And it's not just this verse, but he says everything written in the Old Testament, right? Isn't that what he says? Everything that was written, whatever was written in the former days in terms of the Scripture, is for God's people. It has a Christological focus. Jesus says, these are the scriptures that speak of me. And so he moves into verses 5 to 7 in the most beautiful, seamless prayer. Because he's talking and he's talking and he's teaching and he's pointing and he's giving us a doctrine of scripture and the next thing out of his mouth is... And may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus that together we may, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He seamlessly moves into prayer. He's been teaching them the theology and showing it to them in the scripture and pointing to Jesus and then he seamlessly moves into asking God to do it. May God do it. Right, And that's in verse 5 when he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. Right, The word there literally is to give to you. May God give it to you. The things I've been talking about, the things that I'm teaching you, may God himself give it to you, provide it. To not live selfishly, to not live to please ourselves in the midst of a community, to die to ourselves and to lovingly serve others. God, give it to us. To be that kind of people. Right? This is what Jesus did. My friends, do we see the connection? And we see the same two words in verse 4. Where he says things were written for our endurance and our encouragement. And then in verse 5 he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement give it to you. Right? The things that he says of the scriptures are for and that we need 
to be like Jesus and to be encouraged and to shape like Jesus. He said those, the, the, the endurance that we need and the encouragement that he promises, Paul prays and asks God to give them. Everything that we need is found in God himself. Do we see that? That he is the God of endurance and encouragement. Other places it says he's the God of all comfort, right? That he, is, that he is a holy God, right? That he is a God of peace, right? All these things, all the graces, he is the God of them. He is the source of them. He's the fountain of them, right? He, he's the one from whom all those things will be graced in us. They're fruits of his spirit, literally. And so when he says these are the things that the scripture can work in us, God, will you give it to them? The power of the Christian life, my friends, is not in ourselves. That's why he's teaching it here. And then before he goes on, he prays it into them. Prays it into their life. Prays it into their community and fellowship. Ask God to do it because the source of the Christian life, the source of the graces and virtues is not in ourselves. Right? It is the fruits of his spirit and his work in our lives. God is the source of all that he commands and promises. Augustine got into a lot of trouble with some of his contemporaries, but it became the, the bedrock in some ways of reformed thinking as it is in the scripture when he said, command what you will, O God. Command what you will, but then give what you command. This is where he got into arguments with Pelagius and everything else. Because Paul was saying, because Augustine is saying in that statement, command what you will, but then you need to give it to us. Because we're not capable of it. Plagius said, yes, you are. We're capable of all of it. Just be good. And that summarizes Plagius in a very short and <laughs> maybe unkind manner. But there it is. You can do it. You can be good. Just try harder. We're Augustine's thing. He knew enough. He knew Paul. He give, command whatever you will, but then give what you command. That's what Paul is doing. He says all these things. Here are the things that he wants for this community. And then he breaks into prayer. The intimate connection between the theology and the morality and the practical living that he desires and it all flows seamlessly into prayer. The continuous, unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed. A.W. Tozer from a book I'm reading with my small group on pursuit of God. This, this continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed. It's the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. We see it right here where Paul goes from the seamlessly in his thought and whatever to prayer. Whatever we're thinking, we ask of it of God. Right? And there's this continuous, unembarrassed interchange of seeking from God everything. If you ask specifically, what is Paul praying for? What is it that he wants? Right, he names it in the middle of that first, to grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Right, it's the heart of all of chapter 14 and 15. How much time he spends, and you can understand why, because through the centuries and through the last few years, and you name it, one of the things the church is constantly in need of is harmony. The king's peace, particularly over minor matters that are not theologically foundational, that are not core matters on which the church rises and falls. These are, these are things that we should not quarrel about. And he's, and he's praying, what is the other side of that? What does he want? He wants harmony in the church. That's what he's asking God to give us, harmony. 
by giving us this kind of a soul, right, that, that does not please itself, that is not proud, that doesn't have to be right and have its way, but that selflessly serves, pleases, builds up others. And he says that this harmony, it's a beautiful thing the way he does this, right? Do you see it there? And he says that, they, that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus. That the harmony that we have is as each of us is in accord with Jesus, that, har- that we're harmonized, right? It's that triangle that, you know, you and I are here, but the closer we are to Jesus, the closer we are together, the more harmony that there is, and, then, and that this harmony is in accordance with Christ. It's what Paul said in Philippians 2, remember there? And, you, know, uh, you, know, can, you know, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain, vain conceit and all this. And then he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And then he launches into the great. But have this mind among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. The mind among you should be in accordance with Christ. And what will that do for us? Verse 6, so that we together would have one voice to glorify God with. One mind, one shared set of essentials around which we are brothers and sisters. Because isn't that what he says? That we would glorify the God and Father. Our Father. That's how Jesus taught us to pray as a community. To teach us to pray, he didn't say, my father. He said, our father, right? We're brothers and sisters of our Lord, our common Lord, to whom we all serve. You and I have been welcomed by the Father. That's verse 7. You and I have been welcomed. This is the welcome, he says, offer each other. Jesus has welcomed you. This is, this is the heart of Christ. It should be your heart. We should be a welcoming community to welcome each other even as Christ welcomes us. A.W. Pink says, all have blemishes and infirmities. Some are proud, some are peevish. Some are censorious, critical, and others are backboneless. Or in various other ways, they're just difficult to get on with. Not naming names. Opinions differ. Customs are by no means uniform. May much grace is needed if fellowship is to be maintained. And so may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you and I to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ so that together you and I with one voice may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose great name we pray. Amen.